Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. This week, I'm joined by Neil Blackman. Neil is an expert on the history of race relations and African-Americans in the state of Florida. And we're going to talk to him about Rosewood in just a minute. Uh, Neil, welcome. And I want to say that it's a great privilege to have you on the show. And also, I love talking about these topics of race relations in Florida, the violence that was conducted against African-Americans, partly because Florida was very different than the rest of the South prior to 1821. And Florida was arguably the most integrated place in North America. St. Augustine, I would strongly argue, was the most integrated race-neutral town or city in all of North America. And once Andrew Jackson and the United States conquered Florida, which is what they in fact did, Florida becomes just like any other southern uh, state with its plantations and with its violent enforcement of racial norms. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cardiff. It's it is really interesting, and just the way that that Florida operated, sort of in a world before cattle plantation slavery, um, and and you know how how that changed. Uh, and, and then the, the other thing, and this is something that I thought of, you know, kind of in preparation to talk to you, uh, because there's not many people that know more about the history of this state than you. And 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 I was thinking, you know. To what extent is Florida's racial history kind of forgotten about to some extent as well? Because at the time of the Civil War, which we kind of, you know, as Americans just naturally trace chattel slavery back to the war, right? And and I think, you know, Florida's less populous. Uh, it is geographically still pretty isolated because the climate is brutal, right? We're pre-air conditioning. Yep. Um, it's, it's less forgiving, to, to settlers, I mean, you had to be, a, you know, a really gritty pioneer to, to take on Florida. And so, you know, I think to some extent, like Florida's history with race uh, is a little less well known. And, and that's an interesting trend that, that I think you would probably agree continues really on into the civil rights movement. Yeah, and I think that there's a, a lack of interest uh, or I shouldn't say lack of interest, but a lack of knowledge of the civil rights movement in this state outside of uh, 1964 and St. Augustine. Although I would argue uh, that's less played than it probably should be, considering it right. is that movement that led directly to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was what was happening on the televisions for Americans in St. Augustine that broke the Senate filibuster. Uh, and right. uh, Martin Luther King would even say that himself. Andrew Young would say that himself. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, it, it got underplayed. But so let's let's uh, move past the Civil War Reconstruction era. We have a number of African American elected officials in the state. We have a Republican governor uh, in Harrison Reed, uh, who is supported by African American voters, newly freed African American voters, who are enfranchised at this point. Now, after that, and we've been through this on this podcast before, there was disenfranchisement. There was Jim Crow. Florida, as I, it feels like I have to say every week, Neil, had the highest per capita number of lynchings from 1901 to 1950. I know if you go back to 1877, when uh, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, made his 
corrupt deal with with uh, Southern Democrats and became president and Reconstruction ended. Mississippi has that distinction. But if you just take the first 50 years of the 20th century, Florida has that distinction. And the 19 teens with Woodrow Wilson, uh, maybe the most racist president ever in the White House, uh, was a time when the Klan got reorganized in this state began wreaking havoc on African-Americans and the and also on Catholics in this state. Yeah, and the Klan, you know, we are going to talk about Rosewood tonight and, and the Klan plays an interesting and somewhat accidental role uh, in the story of Rosewood, which I've got to say, you know, going back, um, you hate to find something this horrifying. Uh, and, and the story is horrifying. Um, you hate to find it so fascinating. But it's amazing how, as we approach the 100th anniversary, it, it's in, incredibly topical, Cardiac. Uh There is white supremacist groups and political mobilization. There is uh, the proliferation of fake news. Um there is vigilante justice that is sought. You know, you name it, and the perfect storm for racial violence um, occurs, and we're still grappling with the things that cause Rosewood now. Yeah, Neil, unfortunately, there's so much that is fascinating, obviously, about Rosewood. So, uh, so much that still intrigues us 100 years later as we approach the 100-year anniversary, and uh, so much justice that just never was served. So um, uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. Uh, let's talk about Rosewood. But let's talk about Rosewood. So Rosewood was and is, as they still have a, uh, a postal address, but for all intents and purposes, um, Rosewood was a town uh, just between Gainesville, Florida, uh, and the Gulf of Mexico, uh, closer to Cedar Key on the coast. We're, we're going to talk about these places later, and I'm going to try to give you the lay of the land uh, so that you're sufficiently confused. But uh, it was founded in 1870 uh, at the heart of Reconstruction, and the initial settlers were, were black and white. It was named Rosewood uh, because of the bark um, from the cedar trees that dominated the area and because when they removed a lot of the cedar trees uh, the soil there that had fed the cedar trees was very good for growing roses so between the red bark and the mini rose gardens uh, the name rosewood came to be um, so geographically it's about 40 minutes east of Gainesville which was the biggest town in the area um, at that time and, and remains so. Um, Ten minutes east of Cedar Key, which sits on the Gulf of Mexico, that's a, Cedar Key was a, an important old town because it was a shipping port and uh, it was also the northwest terminus of the old Florida Railroad. So uh, supplies went from Cedar Key all over the place and that's where the train stopped. Um, Rosewood, by 1890, had multiple mills. It had a sugarcane mill, a timber mill, and a turpentine mill. Um, but Jim Crow laws were just forming after – I mean they came up almost immediately after Reconstruction. Ended. But by 1890, 
they were getting much stronger, and so the white settlers left. They, they went to nearby Sumner, Florida, um, which is just uh, to the west of Cedar Key, and, or to the west of Cedar Key and to the west of Rosewood. Um, and the people in Rosewood were basically predominantly black by the turn, turn of the century, and the three mills uh, really helped them have full employment, and be a self-sufficient town. There were also three churches, a Baptist church, an Episcopal church, which was important um, in political organization, uh, as it often was in the American South. Uh, the Episcopal church was sort of a bastion of anti-abolition sentiment uh, in, in before the Civil War, uh, all over the country. And then uh, during... Jim Crow, uh, it would evolve into a force for justice and a Methodist church. There was also a baseball team uh, called the Rosewood Stars. Obviously, it was a, a black-only team, but they were apparently the best team in the region, and they would play uh, even the Jacksonville uh, Negro League team and, and to much success. Rosewood had two general stores, uh, one of which was white-owned um, by one of the few white families that stayed, and a railroad station. Uh, the railroad station speaks to to the economic productivity of Rosewood. Uh, that railroad station also drops supplies to other stores and ships supplies from the thriving mill. So economically, there was a good engine um, at the time of the Rosewood massacre, which which we're going to talk about. I think that in framing it it's important and one reason that Cardick and I thought this was such an interesting episode to have was that you know you can frame and draw a line between the violence in Rosewood and a lot of the the economic violence that's happening now so I think uh, not economic the racial violence um, and and socioeconomic protest and racial protest you know so much of it uh, the racial protest are you know, there's a line that can be drawn back to these old incidents, and, and in Florida, um, this is this is the big one. So, New Year's Eve, um, the story goes uh, that um, Sumner is the neighboring town, as as we discussed. Many of the whites moved there. That town is almost exclusively white. There were some more traditional Jim Crow type house uh, jobs that black women had and they would go to Sumner and there was one woman from Rosewood in particular who who worked in a home of a woman named Fanny Taylor. Fanny was 22 and on New Year's Eve she was found screaming inside her home. Uh, She was covered in bruises and her face uh, was flushed. She didn't have bruising on her face, but on her arms and uh, those areas. When her husband arrived, she alleged to her husband and others that she had been assaulted and beaten up. And she said it happened um, that a huge black man had did it, had done it. Um, this was reported to the sheriff of Levy County, a man named Robert Elias Walker. Taylor told Walker very specifically that she had not been raped. But as often happened back at this time, the story spiraled and ultimately accounts say that that people in Sumner eventually settled on 
Taylor being attacked and raped. Now, this history of false accusation uh, or of an accusation spiraling out of control into to a much worse or more sinister, more sinister crime uh, is a common thread in, in the age of lynchings. Um, and Florida from 1900 to 1950 led the American South in, in lynchings per capita. Um, so that's something you can, you can count on a lot of times when there's a lynching is that there's going to be a false accusation, uh, that, that, that stirs up white hatred and infuriates a mob that, that then seeks vigilante justice. Um, this isn't the case with all lynchings and that's important to kind of denote is that racial hatred didn't really need you didn't need a false accusation to do a lynching, um, but they often were at the center of them uh, and, and triggered them. Um, and I think if you draw a line between this Fannie Taylor story to contemporary events, you have a really good explanation of what happened on Maud Arbery no more than two hours north of Rosewood in Glen County, Georgia, uh, where you had – the McMichaels that basically asserted that, you know, Arbery was the suspect in, in a robbery, uh, in a burglary. Uh, and that that's why they kind of gathered their own mob and followed him. And it ends up with Ahmaud Arbery killed. Trayvon Martin, it's murder in Sanford. You know, George Zimmerman on the, on the neighborhood watch. Just, just, he just gets fear that, you know, oh, there's been recent burglaries in the area. Uh, and so that's a, a reason that he goes and follows Trayvon uh, and ends up killing Trayvon. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tale as old as time, sadly. And it's at the heart of, of racial violence. Now, Taylor didn't fight the account of her being raped much um, when it spiraled out of control. Uh, her husband, James Taylor, no relation to the, the singer, didn't know that Fanny had taken a lover. Um, and this is an important kind of a side fact, that the bruising might have been from, from rough sex, that that there was definitely that possibility. That Fanny Taylor had taken a lover, and really the only person that probably knew about that was um, the woman who – Sarah Carter, who was from Rosewood and worked as a housemaid for the Taylor family, uh, she she would have known about the affair, um, and kept quiet as as would happen in those age because of sort of the understanding quote air quotes heavy air quotes of the of the racial caste system. But in, in any event, um, James Taylor is a foreman at a local lumber mill, and he gathers a few of his lumber mill buddies to form a posse, and they go look for this hawking black man apparently uh, beat Fannie Taylor. So here you see the, the take the law into your own hands with your neighbor's thread that can be tied all the way to the Arbery murder, like I just mentioned, or, or the Zimmerman uh, neighborhood watch. As it turns out, this small posse becomes a big posse because – it just so happens that a group of about 500 Ku Klux Klan members were celebrating the New Year's New Year in Gainesville. They were holding a rally uh, outside a 
a new Catholic church, and generally they were raising hell. The clan wasn't very fond of Catholicism either. Um, so many of the clansmen get word of, of this accusation, and they hop a train and, and grab rides to Sumner. So essentially what you had is at this point is on New Year's Eve you've got roving bands of armed white men patrolling the woods and local law enforcement doing very little to stop them. Uh, in fact, Robert Elias Walker, that's the sheriff of, of Levy County, where Rosewood is. It's this uh, small, actually in land, kind of large, but it's the county to, to the immediate west of Alachua County where Gainesville is. Um, and Elias Walker is the sheriff of that county. He, he finds out that a man named Jesse Hunter, who is described as kind of a hulking black man, has escaped the local chain gang. He gets word of this from law enforcement in a neighboring county, and he's believed to be at large either in Alachua, where Gainesville is, or in Levy, where Rosewood and Sumner are, um, or in Gilchrist County, which borders Alachua County to the east. So Turner is immediately uh, designated as the suspect. He's suspected to be in one of these three counties, and so you have these roving bands of white folks that are well-armed, Many of them Klansmen that are out looking for this guy. And this falsehood, coupled with uh, the falsehood that, that Taylor had been assaulted, not the falsehood that, that Jesse Hunter had escaped. That was true. Um, but the falsehood by Taylor, coupled with the large black population in Rosewood, that's how white mobs started to set their sights on Rosewood because their belief was that, well – Jesse Hunter's black, and the black folks must be hiding him. So a, a bunch of these people go to the home of Aaron Carrier, who is one of the two dominant families economically in Rosewood. So they go there first. He's the nephew, as it turns out, of Sarah Carrier. And Sarah is the housemaid that works for the Taylors. So she probably knows about the affair. Um, in any event... They think that the carriers must be hiding this man um, because Sarah works there. She must know something. She's not talking. Um, so they take Aaron Carrier out of his home in Rosewood and they beat him. They tie him to a motor car on the front and they drive him to Sumner. They cut him loose in Sumner. They beat him a little more. They're getting ready to string him up on a tree and lynch him. And at this point in time, Robert Elias Walker is there. And Elias Walker, he respected the Carrier family. He thought, these are hardworking folks. You've got a mill foreman. Uh, he put a stop to it and stops the lynching. But he's worried about, hey, how can I look for Jesse Hunter and protect um, Aaron Carrier at the same time? So here he makes – one of a series of fatal mistakes that he's going to make. Uh, this one is he drives Aaron Carrier to Gainesville and puts him in protective custody of the Alachua County Sheriff. But without Walker, Elias Walker around, the white mob is empowered because the one kind of stand between, between them going rogue with violence and the people in Rosewood is this sheriff. So they go back to Rosewood because they know it'll take Walker a little time to get back to Gainesville. And they go to the home of a man named Sam Carter, who's a local blacksmith. And they beat him so badly 
that eventually Sam Carter uh, says, you know what? I know where Jesse Hunter is. He, he takes them to the woods, but they can't produce Turner. So uh, the mob is furious. And with no walker around, they blame Sam Carter. They call him a liar. They shoot him in the leg. And then as he's bleeding, they string him up to a nearby oak tree and they hang him until he's dead. So a lynching represents the first known casualty of of the Rosewood affair. Eventually, uh, the mob goes back to the home of the Carey family. We're on New Year's Day now. And the family's children are inside. It's the holidays. And eventually they surround the home. And the mob begins to fire their guns at the home. Sarah Carrier, uh, hoping to reason with the anger crowd, many of these people who she knows because she works in Sumner, comes outside. And uh, she's more or less immediately shot in the head and killed. Um, her son, Sylvester Carrier, is a local music teacher and a timber industry salesman of some repute. Uh, he's done well for himself. Um he sees his mom murdered. He just goes outside to try to get her body. He's also murdered. In the melee, two white attackers are killed after uh, Sarah Carrier and Sylvester are killed because there are, you know, the, the people inside the Carrier home have guns. They see those two murdered. There's an exchange of fire. They fire back finally. All told, six people, four blacks and two whites, lose their lives, and several others are wounded. The carrier home is eventually overrun by the white mob, but fortunately, many of the Rosewood women and children escape through the back door. Uh, They head to the woods and swamps surrounding Rosewood. This is a low-lying coastal area. So ultimately, they wait there in the damp cold among snakes and alligators uh, and, and this part of Florida, believe it or not, can get pretty chilly. And the accounts were that it was uh, cold even for that time of the year. So they're, they're in the cold in the swamps with the gators and the snakes. Meanwhile, local media falsely report two critical things. Uh, and this, this escalation is very bad, uh, as it turns out long term. One. They report that Fanny Taylor had been raped. That was the, the Gainesville paper. Uh, two, they report that roving bands of armed blacks, that old trope about, you know, the, the fear of the slave rebellion, the fear of black rebellion that animated and informed so much of what happened in the Jim Crow South, is spread initially by the Tampa Bay paper, the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, but eventually this story is picked up by the Washington Post. Um, it is picked up by the St. Louis Dispatch. It is picked up by the Chicago Tribune. So you have national papers reporting Florida paper stories that roving bands of black folks are, are roaming the woods seeking vengeance for the carrier deaths. Those reports um, suggest that a race war has started and angry whites then flood the area. Uh, believing that, quote, their way of life is under attack as one uh, predominant flyer that was found uh, said. So we now have white mobs that are setting their sights on Rosewood and in mass. 
the first thing they do is burn the churches, the usual place of refuge. Now, this is important because, you know, historically, the African-American and black church has not been a place of refuge uh, like it is for most people, especially white people. It has been the site of political terror um, throughout the history of the republic, from pre-slavery to uh, the Jim Crow South to the Birmingham church bombings all the way to Charleston and Dillon Roof. This is something that that whites want to – it's a way for people in power and white folks to say you are safe nowhere in America. You know What could be more sacred than, than terrorizing – than the church? And if you can terrorize someone in their place of worship, you can terrorize them anywhere. Um, so they burn the churches first. They slowly set fire to the buildings in the town. This occurs in the dead of night by plan when people are sleeping in their homes. So people are fleeing, literally coming out of um, burning homes. As people flee, more black people are shot. It is unclear even to this day how many died. There are estimates that the number is near 100. There are estimates that it's near 50. There are estimates that it's lower. One who did die was Lexi Gordon, who took a shotgun blast to the face when fleeing her burning home. Her sister was suffering from typhoid fever, and her sister managed to take herself from bed and hide in a cellar underneath the burning house. She spent days there uh, with only water, um, but got out and managed to write an account of, of what had happened that she saw through a people in the cellar door. Those who did escape joined the children and women uh, who fled the carrier home in the woods and swamps. Um, a lot of these accounts are from newspaper uh, articles uh, that I could find, internet accounts, uh, and special thanks to the University of Florida, uh, special collections for assistance with, with this project, um, which really dates back to my understanding and interest in Rosewood dates back to my, my years at the University of Florida Law School. But uh, a lot of these things are records that I have um, have, have viewed. Eventually, a local turpentine factory manager um, tries to help the crowds out, provides refuge in his storefront, but he is captured by a white mob bringing them supplies. They drive him out uh, to the woods just outside Rosewood. They ask him to dig a grave for himself, and then after he's completed the work, they execute him sort of Nazi style by shooting him in the back of the head. He falls into the grave, is never seen again. No one knows precisely where the grave is. Carrier, uh, James Carrier, another one of the Carrier families, eventually finds help from John and William Bryce. They're two Episcopalian white men from Gainesville. Um, remember, the Episcopalians were, were sort of racial equality advocates back in that age. They also ran a train on the Florida Railroad. They get escapees, as many as they could fit, women and children, to board their train, they usher them to safety in Gainesville, where many of these Rosewood people would eventually settle. The men, however, they could not take um, or would not take. It's kind of unclear. Uh, but the black men remained hidden, sheltered by Rosewood General Store owner John Wright. Wright, with the help of Sheriff Walker, who's back, the two of them work and arrange for black men to hide. Um, and it, it's important to note here that Robert Elias Walker 
for all the things that he did wrong. Um, he throws the pursuing white mobs off the scent. He knows where the black men are, uh, and he's throwing them off the scent. But what's interesting is that he's then offered help by the governor at the time, Kerry Hardy. Kerry Hardy is most famous for eliminating Florida's income tax. You're welcome. Um, Hardy offers Walker help. He says, look, I'll deputize the National Guard to quell the violence. But Walker, a proud man, uh, to say the least, wires the governor and he says, no need for the guard. I have the situation in Roosevelt under control. I'm not afraid of further disorder. That telegram can actually be seen in the Florida archives today. Uh, Needless to say, Walker did not have the situation under control. The mobs come back to Rosewood, having already burned the churches, and they burn the rest of the town down with the exception of the old Victorian home owned by John Wright. Um, By the end, Rosewood is burned to the ground. The residents are driven out of the town more or less permanently. Uh, But if you go there today, there is one home in a church which carries the Rosewood name, but in truth services neighboring towns. That's really the extent of what is left. Um, some folks tried to rebuild from 1921 when this occurred to, or 1923, I'm sorry, when this occurred uh, until 1950, but by 1950, most everyone was out. There's actually a great article in the Tampa Bay Times about the last home left in Rosewood. It's a gorgeous three-story Victorian with a porch and uh, stained glass windows surrounded by oak, pecan, and cedar trees. I just saw it a couple weeks ago when I was in Cedar Key. Um, If any listeners want the link, I'll send it to to Karnak and he can grab it for you. But um, to kind of conclude the story, Kerry Hardy orders an investigation after John Wright gets the black men to, to safety in various neighboring places. Hardy then orders an investigation, and a special grand jury is convened. This is a little unusual in and of itself. Most of the time, if there was a grand jury convened, they would come back the same day. This grand jury took 30 days. They deliberated and argued for 30 days, and then at the end, they made the finding that most of these grand juries and show trials did make, which was um, that there wasn't enough evidence of any violence to prosecute anyone for anything. So after that finding, the people of Rosewood, uh, who had had fled to Gainesville, Archer, and Cedar Key predominantly, eventually they they declined to return. They they were all mostly too fearful that if they rebuilt, the racial violence would return. John Wright and his general store remained, but that was the end of Rosewood, which had become one of Florida's most flourishing black settlements, uh, at least for all – you know, our purposes as a flourishing black settlement that ended uh, the first week of 1923, January 1923. And the story after the grand jury more or less goes quiet until 1982 when Gary Moore, a journalist with the St. Pete Times, reads about the tale at the University of Florida libraries. And, and interestingly, these are libraries that would would come to bear the name of of George Smathers, a, a very rabid racist. Uh, so it's interesting that you know, to think of this man more in this library that would eventually come to be named for a racist by the University of Florida and its board of trustees. Moore starts talking to survivors after he reads newspaper accounts. Most of these survivors are in their 80s and 90s at that time. One named Arnett Doctor 
is an advocate and says the family should be compensated for what happened. And doctor explains, you know, anytime I heard multiple cars come to a home late at night, I would hide under the bed. Like the trauma that Arnett doctor suffered in the aftermath of the Rosewood massacre uh, is just staggering to think about. But Moore's work in the Times, along with the 1997 film uh, Rosewood um, by John Singleton, uh, who directed Boys in the Hood is most famous for that, the late John Singleton. Um, but but his film about Rosewood, Spike Lee called it one of the most powerful meditative films about race ever made. Uh, Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, called it the most gruesome and raw depiction of white-on-black violence he'd ever seen on film at the time and said it absolutely inspired his work in 12 Years a Slave. So it's so funny. Boys in the Hood made Singleton famous. Rosewood might be a more important movie for the brave steps it took it, it took at, depi- at depicting white murder of of black folks uh, which in 1997 was still not something that we showed in particular graphic detail on film you know we would tend to focus on things like boys in the hood did black on black violence um so that rosewood was a very unique film in that regard and an important film uh, but those things shed light on the Rosewood massacre. Moore's work led to work in the Florida legislature and in 1995. Lawton Childs, who was a great friend of, of, of my grandfather uh, and, and a, a very good governor, um, he signs a bill uh, allowing for reparations. Um, which becomes a vital precedent, you know, in Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, Atlantic piece, now famous, the case for reparations. There is uh, the citation as, as the legal precedent being Florida's Reparations Act. Uh, the Republican leadership um, played a huge role in that. So this was a bipartisan effort in Florida to, to establish this uh, reparations. Speaker Corcoran. Uh, many others were, were very involved in that project. And Jeb Bush dedicated a monument uh, to, to Rosewood, a, a historical marker monument um, right there on State Road 24 that you that you can see now. Uh, it's a beautiful monument, and I've sent some photos to Karnak of it. I, again, I saw it a couple weeks ago. Um, and then in 2010, uh, Florida a Republican governor signs a bill – Fortifying the scholarship funds for descendants of the Rosewood family. So if you're a descendant of a Rosewood family, you have college paid for. Uh, and, and as part of an expansion of that reparations package. Uh, what do we know about Rosewood or what don't we know? We don't know the exact death toll. We don't really know the exact population of Rosewood at the time of the 1923 massacre. Uh, in 1920, we think uh, the census says 344 blacks and 294 whites. So we think at most it was a town of about 800, but we don't know for sure. We also don't know the total death toll. It, it has to be more than the six known from the New Year's Day uh, killings and then the, uh, the the first lynching victim, Sam Carter. Um we don't know how many other stories like this exist. Obviously, the 1951 uh, murders, Christmas Day murders of civil rights activists uh, in Mims, Florida, come to mind. 
Um, but we don't know about whole towns more or less being extinguished by, by white racial violence. Uh, and we don't know if we're doomed to see repeat stories of, like, of this in the future, although certainly the protests that have animated the country this summer uh, suggest that we're still engaged in some odd, morally bizarre debate over whether or not black lives really matter. Um, and you know, affirming the value of black life continues to be something that, for whatever reason, causes controversy in, in the United States. Um, but Rosewood is an important part of Florida's history because it illustrates that, that Florida has a very checkered past on race, which um, obviously, as Cardick has mentioned, wasn't something that it really had prior to European uh, English settlement not Spanish settlement, um, but but certainly uh, its history with chattel slavery and Jim Crow is just as fierce and vicious as in other places in the South uh, where, you know, you hear about it more. Um, so that's sort of the story of Rosewood. You could do a whole show on the importance of uh, the reparations president, precedent, but... I liked this letter from Roby Martin, who was a, a survivor who at the time of Rosewood was a seven-year-old girl and was one of the ones who, who got on a train to Gainesville. And she wrote, Rosewood was a town where everyone's house was painted. There were roses everywhere you walked. It was a place where dreams came true. It was lovely. Uh, until, until unfortunately, it, it wasn't anymore. Yeah, Neil, thank you for that. And unfortunately... The media at the time didn't do their job. They parroted racial stereotypes. And uh, I would particularly point out the Washington Post and St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch. Uh, those two newspapers were especially uh, guilty. And they, uh, Washington was a very southern town at the time. And um, St. Louis had a lot of southern influence. But uh, the perception of this lynching around the north and around the country wasn't changed until many years after that because of the media. Anyway, Neil, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're going to uh, pick this up somewhere in the future on this podcast, discussing uh, similar incidents in Florida's very sad uh, racial history. Uh, so thank you once again for listening to the Florida History Podcast. You can find our show wherever you find podcasts. Uh, until next week, thank you for listening.